0: If you want to work smarter, you need a system with smart built-in. Workday has AI embedded into the core of the system to seamlessly support your workflow and deliver unprecedented adaptability. Workday, the finance and HR system for a changing world.
1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. To be a Democratic presidential candidate in America these days is to have big, transformative ideas. But those ideas would go nowhere if Republicans maintain their Senate majority. Problem is, the best contenders to take back Senate seats are too busy vying for the presidency. And the Democratic Republic of Congo is one of the largest sources of quinine, a chemical that protects against malaria. It also has the world's second highest rate of the disease. We look into why a homegrown cure isn't having enough effects. But first... More than 200 people were detained yesterday in Russia after protesters marched across the country. Demonstrators uploaded videos of chants calling for freedom and criticizing President Vladimir Putin. There had been a week of outcry after the arrest of journalist Ivan Golunov, who had dug into official corruption. When Mr. Golunov was released, he thanked his supporters and said he hoped no one else would face the same fate. It looked like a win for free speech, The truth is more complicated.
0: Yesterday was an important day for Russia. It actually was a national holiday. Arkady Ostrovsky is The Economist's Russia editor. So what happened yesterday on this national holiday, on this national day, is that the Russian liberals, the opposition, came out in the streets under the Russian flags, protesting against police brutality, protesting against the lack of the rule of law, defending a journalist, a prominent journalist, who had been... A week uh, before that was arrested and had drugs planted on him. So let's wind back a bit. Tell
1: me about the the, the journalist who had been uh, who had been arrested.
0: A week ago on on the 6th of June, in broad daylight in the center of Moscow, a journalist for one of a few independent websites called Meduza was apprehended by the policeman. so an investigative journalist called Ivan Golonov. They brought him to police station, told him to open his bag, and surprise, surprise, what did they find? There was a few bags uh, of what looked like narcotics. Uh, as it later became clear, but was suspected from the very beginning, the police planted drugs in his bag as a revenge for his investigations. They also released pictures, which later turned out to be fakes, of his flat and the whole sort of laboratory for producing, producing drugs. He was denied access to his lawyer, he was beaten up. It was kind of a nightmare, a, a very Russian nightmare.
1: You, you say very Russian nightmare. I mean, the, the, Russia isn't well known for great press freedom. Is this so surprising a turn of events?
0: The police and security services had planted drugs on people before. So what was different is that, A, Moscow itself is a, a bit of a special territory. The idea is it's kind of a model of this, what the Kremlin thinks of a sort of civil authoritarianism. It's all looking quite good and modern and here are the shopping malls and we don't quite do the outrageous things that get done to you in Chechnya. So Moscow has a special license. Secondly, this was happening very brazenly, and people realized that this was a new line that that, um, the security services were crossing and that when they started to protest for Ivan Golonov. They were not just protesting for the freedom of speech. They were not protesting just for those journalists. Everybody who was out in the streets in this past week knew that they were actually standing for themselves because they would be next. And so that
1: that loud, that unified response appears to have worked.
0: Uh, Surprisingly, nobody when it started believed that he would be released. Nobody, to be honest, myself included. I thought that the only way he could be released if 150 to 200,000 people came out in the streets. What I underestimated is actually the the power of an access to media, social media, online media, YouTube that the protesters uh, the journalists had. I mean, this was a protest driven by journalists who do have a lot of uh, media power, not on state television, but on on social media and websites. I've also underestimated, and I think everybody did, the protest mood in Moscow and in Russia more generally, that actually very little needs to, you know, the cocktail of stagnating economy, declining incomes, and conspicuous injustices and corruption is so rich now that anything could really spark that. And this was this was the match. This was the spark. And the impact it started to have on the media space more generally was so great that it actually overshadowed Putin. Putin was having his summit with Xi Jinping in St. Petersburg, the St. Petersburg Economic Forum, and all that people were talking about was Ivan Golonov. So you think Mr.
1: Putin, it was on Mr. Putin's orders then that, that Mr. Golonov was
0: released? It was at... In my mind, there is, is no doubt whatsoever that the order to release Ivan Golonov came from the Kremlin. Whereas um, the order to arrest him, you believe, had not. Where the order to arrest him was the initiative of, you know, security servicemen acting on commission from gangsters on the cut. What the Kremlin is trying to do, the Kremlin tries to avoid a situation where it would have to use massive violence. Because... Using mass repression is actually very dangerous for a regime. So do you think this is an incident that just reveals a bit
1: about how that sort of carefully balanced system works? Or does it reveal that that system, the, the, the balance of power is changing in some way?
0: Both. Interestingly enough, it reveals both. It reveals that the Kremlin thinks and tries to micromanage the situation. That unable to quash protests, it decides to, to lead the protest. To sort of an old tactic at the same time as Ivan Golonov was released, Alexei Navalny was arrested as was his chief of staff. So the Kremlin is trying to differentiate between unsanctioned, unlicensed use of violence and the political repression to which it is entitled. What it actually reveals to me is that while the Kremlin thinks that it's on top of the situation, the situation has its own logic. The social protest has its own logic and the Kremlin would rather not test how strong this really is.
1: I mean, just on that question of uh, revealing the system or re- revealing how the system is changing, do you believe that the, the sort of the power, the, the influence of, uh, of the media or, or, the, or protest movements more generally would have you, is that changing?
0: Ivan Golonov could publish his stuff on the Medusa website. It was available, you know, six months ago. What makes it important is there is a a change in the social mood when suddenly people want to read it, when there is demand for it, and this is actually what happened. It's not just the power of the social media that got, in the end, Ivan Golanov freed. It was the fact that the police action created demand in the Russian society for reading uh, and learning about the stories and and rallying around the journalist, It was the police and the state that created that demand, uh, not actually the media itself. Arkady, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you. If you want to work smarter, you need a system with smart built-in. Workday has AI embedded into the core of the system to seamlessly support your workflow and deliver unprecedented adaptability. Workday, the finance and HR system for a changing world.
1: The Democratic primary race is crowded with candidates full of ambitious ideas for profound change in America. But what are the odds any of them will become reality? This
2: Democratic primary has focused a lot on policy proposals that are really ambitious.
1: Idris Kalun is The Economist's US policy correspondent.
2: This strategy began in 2015, when Bernie Sanders was running for the presidential primary last time around. He put out these ideas of Medicare for all, free college tuition for public institutions. And now that he's running again, he's running on pretty much the same set of ideas.
3: Three years ago, they thought we were kinda crazy and extreme. Not the case anymore. Three years ago, the ideas that we brought forth here in Illinois and all over the country were rejected by Democrats. Not anymore.
2: Competitors have also adopted that strategy. Elizabeth Warren wants to do a trillion dollar or so climate change proposal.
3: I will sign a moratorium that on our public lands, there will be no more new drilling or mining, none.
2: She also wants to offer universal childcare and break up big tech. Kamala Harris wants to legalize marijuana and end cash bail.
0: What we do want is a justice system where whether you sit in jail before trial is based on the size of your crime and not the size of your bank account.
2: Pete Buttigieg wants to pack the Supreme Court up to 15 justices from its current nine.
3: I do think we urgently need to make sure
2: not just that the court be less conservative, although it is too conservative, but really to make sure that the court is more balanced and less political. Andrew Yang wants to offer universal basic income.
0: Now, if you're here tonight, you heard something like this at some point. There's an Asian man running for president who wants to give everyone $1,000 a month.
3: And all of those things are dead true.
2: This really is a primary that is structured around these big proposals for remaking the American economy as we know it.
1: All of this sounds big, ambitious, expensive perhaps. I mean, does any of this look to you enticing enough to to make it to the presidency?
2: When debating these policy ideas, it can sometimes sound like Donald Trump's losing is a given, and that's not true. The betting markets currently suggest that he has a 50-50 chance of winning re-election, even though it's early. But we do know that the economy is doing well, the unemployment rate is low, and America likes to re-elect its presidents, especially when the economy is doing well. And it's unlikely that some big scandal would completely derail Trump because of all the scandals that have happened over the last 18 months, his approval rating really has not moved very much at all. 42% of Americans still support him even after the Mueller investigation, even after those images of children being caged at the border. It's unlikely that some new event would emerge that might tank Donald Trump's approval rating. So it's not a lock for the Democrats to win the White House in the first place. And should Democrats beat Donald Trump they still have this problem with the Senate, which is unlikely to revert to Democratic control based on the current map.
1: So you mentioned that the, the Senate is is out of reach. I mean, what do you mean by that? Why, why do you seem convinced of that?
2: It's not entirely out of reach. So the betting markets currently suggest that Democrats have a 30% chance of taking the Senate, but it is an uphill battle. Right now, they have 47 senators. They would need 50 and the presidency in order to retake control. That's because the vice president gets to break the ties. Now, the prospects for them are difficult. The easiest pickup is probably going to be in Colorado, where Cory Gardner is a Republican incumbent in an increasingly blue state. Susan Collins in Maine is a longtime Republican incumbent in a blue state. She might be another person that the Democrats are able to pick off. Their third pickup would have to come from somewhere more unusual, would have to come from somewhere like Arizona or Iowa or North Carolina. And then there's the problem of Doug Jones. Democrats currently have a senator in Alabama. Now, Doug Jones is up for election in 2020. Alabama is a really, really red state. It voted for Donald Trump by a 28-point majority in 2016. And it's quite likely that Doug Jones could lose his seat. That means the Democrats would have to take back four seats. And in that case, it's quite tough to imagine them doing so.
1: But if the Democrats gain a majority, then their ideas have a chance?
2: Even if the Democrats do take back the Senate, it's going to be with a very thin majority. It's going to be with either one seat or two seats. If they don't get rid of the filibuster, which requires 60 votes to pass most legislation, it's unlikely that these big sweeping reforms would actually come into effect. We saw an example of this when Barack Obama was first elected and Democrats had complete control over government for a period of about six months. He was unable to pass a carbon tax or the ambitious progressive priorities that he came into office having. So even with a thin majority, it's difficult to translate that into real laws that get signed by a president.
1: It sounds either way as if the, the Democrats have quite a bit of, of winning to do to, to have a chance at all. I mean, are the, are they fielding the right candidates for that?
2: There is one problem that the Democrats have, which is that the top tier candidates who might be able to contest the Senate in some of these red states are now seeking to become president. So Beto O'Rourke in Texas, mounted a pretty serious challenge to Ted Cruz. He would be well-placed to take on John Cornyn, who is the other senator who's up for election in 2020, but he's instead decided to run for president. He's not doing very well in the polls. You see a similar phenomenon with Steve Bullock, the governor of Montana, who could also credibly challenge the Republican incumbent there in 2020. And he is also running for president. Most of America hasn't heard of him, and it's unlikely that he will eventually win. But you do see this general problem with uh, top-tier Senate candidates choosing instead to be second- or third-tier presidential candidates.
1: Is it your assertion, then, that if the Democratic field wasn't so packed with these talented folks and they stayed closer to home, that the party as a whole would have a better shot at getting its goals accomplished?
2: It seems like for Beto O'Rourke and Steve Bullock in particular, there's a pretty strong incentive for them to run for Senate as opposed to where it looks like they'll end up in the presidential contest – Another candidate is Stacey Abrams, who lost a very closely followed contest for governor of Georgia, who could run for the Senate, but she's also mulling a a presidential run as well.
1: And and so, as it stands, if if you were a betting man, how would you say this is likely to play out?
2: Right now, it looks like Donald Trump is a coin toss on re-election. On the Senate, it looks murkier. It looks like Democrats have about a 30% chance of taking back the Senate. Republicans have about a 70% chance of, of keeping it. Now... It is likely that Mitch McConnell, who is also up for re-election in Kentucky, will keep his berth as as Senate Majority Leader. We have lots of data on what a McConnell-led Senate looks like, and not much happens. So I think that 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 indicates... um,
1: Chances are very good for political paralysis to continue.
2: Yeah, and it means that a lot of these big ideas, that we've seen Medicare for All or the like, would fall by the wayside. And instead the presidency would, like Obama's, focus heavily on executive actions. It might focus more on trade, perhaps climate change treaties and foreign affairs. But that's a very different presidential debate than the one that we're currently having in the Democratic primary.
1: Idris, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. A fresh outbreak of Ebola in the Democratic Republic of Congo has taken more than a thousand lives. It's already spread to neighboring Uganda. But a bigger public health concern has been playing out in Congo for years, even though the means to prevent it literally grows on trees.
3: I recently came back from a town called Bukavu, in the South Kivu province of the Democratic Republic of Congo.
1: Olivia Ackland reports on Central Africa for The Economist and has been to see those forests.
3: Both North and South Kivu have a tragic reputation. There are over 120 marauding armed groups in the region, which regularly plunder villages and rape women. On top of this, the world's second largest ever Ebola outbreak is spreading through North Kivu. It's now infected over 2,000 people. But unbeknown to most of the world, the region has also saved millions of lives. It's home to the biggest forests of Chinchona trees that exist in the world. The conditions in north and south Kivu, most notably altitude and humidity, are perfect for cultivating these trees. And the trees have quinine in their bark, which is the world's oldest malaria cure, and also tastes nice when mixed with gin. It's it's what gives tonic water the bitter taste.
1: So, wait a minute, The, the stuff that's used in tonic water is still being used to treat malaria?
3: Yeah, which is what makes Congo's experience all the more tragic. Despite producing masses of quinine, DRC still has the second highest rate of malaria deaths in the world. In 2017, 400,000 people died from the disease. This is partly because many people can't afford to pay the $2 required to buy a course of 21 pills, or they simply don't manage to get diagnosed in time.
1: So how does it go from bark to medicine?
3: So you have to process the bark in order to have the quinine salt. And... In Bukavu, a dusty town on the edge of the plantations, is one of just five quinine extracting plants that exists in the world. It's owned by a German company, Pharmakina. I visited it. It's vast and full of whirring machinery. I spoke to someone at Pharmakina who said that one problem is that because there's such an unreliable supply of electricity in Congo, they have to run a lot of their machines on generators, which are liable to conk out. The extracting plant has been running since 1961, and enables Pharmakina to pump out around thirty percent of the global demand for quinine. Half of this is sent abroad, a third of which is turned into tonic water, and about two thirds into medicine.
1: So you mentioned that there's, for instance, unreliable electricity supply and so on. I mean, that that doesn't sound like a sound basis for running a big global supply business.
3: Yes, and it's not the only problem that the business faces in the Congo. The armed groups' never-ending skirmishes. Some of Pharmakina's forests stretch into an area which is overrun with dozens of rebel groups that call themselves Mai Mai. These groups regularly take hostages and kill people. They also send letters to the company demanding cash and threatening workers. Somebody from Pharmakina told me that, of course, they don't pay the groups, but they do have to negotiate with them. These, these negotiations take time and... As they're playing out, workers are too frightened to turn up at the plantations for obvious reasons.
1: So, I mean, faced with all of these problems, how how does the future for Pharmakena or for the supply of quinine in general look to you?
3: So there's growing competition from Indian traders, and the traders are buying bark from private plantations in the region and shipping it to India to extract the quinine salt. Because processing costs are lower in India, Cheaper quinine floods the market, and Pharmakina struggles as a result. Also, the demand has fallen since the discovery of synthetic quinine and artemisin, which is another plant based malaria drug. But this is somewhat counterbalanced by the drink industry's ever growing thirst for the stuff.
1: Olivia, thank you very much for joining us.
3: Thanks very much for having me, Jason.